Welcome to Tales of Northern Missions Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and today we're going to continue where we left off with Eric Hemingway, the Director of Department Repatriation, Archives, and Records for the Little Travers Bands of Odawa Indians. Welcome back, Eric. Thanks for having me. Well, we left off last week. We were just getting past the introduction of the French voyageurs kind of coming to this region. And I had a question for you. And were the Adawa open for the next wave, which was religious conversion, or was it forced upon them by the French voyageurs and the missionaries that were coming to this area? From what I've seen in history, the Jesuits couldn't really force it on them. They just didn't have the, the, the numbers or the manpower. They certainly wanted to. I mean, this was a crusade, for lack of a better a term, crusade. to come here and convert and save souls and go into these really remote communities and put themselves through some pretty arduous hardships. I mean, some of the accounts of what the Jesuits were doing, these are the early French missionaries, you would wonder why would somebody would do all of this to you know, live in these elements and always on the point of starvation. But to them, it was this divine task. They believed in what they were doing. They believed in what they were doing. Now, from the Native perspective, I can only speculate that it must have been a very, a very odd and unusual experience, you know, to, to come so far and to, to be alone. And that's a very alien element in Native society, to be alone like that, to go into these communities that you don't know alone, without family and, and your friends and your community, and to talk of this, you know, different belief, different faith, and convert. And Native people have a very, from my understanding, you know, very flexible belief system. They are very, you know, very much in tune with their experiences and their upbringing and environments. And it creates this, a, a very... I just want to say, is, I keep coming back to this term, flexible dynamic you know, that Native people have in terms of belief systems. And a lot of it, I say most of it, is re, you know, relating to your environment, these places. You know, these places are sacred, whether it's the burials, whether it's the, the river or these trees, so on and so forth. And the environment and the land directly interacts with the beliefs. Now, to leave that and go to these places far away, it, it doesn't fit. So I can only speculate, you know, that these Odawas are seeing these people you know, leaving their homelands where their sacred areas are back in Europe and so on and bringing that with them, crossing over this ocean, going to the interior, having these hardships. Not many Odawa or not many Native people converted right away. It, it wasn't this, this mass conversion. It wasn't like that. Some did. Many did it in the 1600s. Now, as time goes on, things change quite drastically from century to century, decade to decade. We see the French coming in, and there's always this idea with the early Europeans and the Americans that natives are savages. It's, that's undeniable. It's in the records throughout all of these different European nations. The French say this, the British say this, and the Americans all say this. The native people are savages, and they need to be civilized. And you cannot be civilized unless you are Christian. It's just unfathomable to be Christian and uncivilized or vice versa. So as time goes on, there's this stronger effort to quote-unquote civilize Native people from coast to coast. 
So in the early 1800s, we start to see these policies we call civilization policies being implemented on Native communities by the federal government. And this would lead into the Indian boarding schools of the late 1800s. So this idea of civilizing the savage started early with the early French Jesuits and just built over the centuries. The French missionaries are here, as we discussed, you know, in the Great Lakes as early as like 1620, Etienne Brule is coming through, arguably the first European to set foot in the Great Lakes region. But it's, it's not until like 1850 that Andrew Porter arrives here in Petoskey. Uh, by 1852, Andrew Porter will form a Presbyterian church, an Indian school uh, near the Bear River settlement. Was that the most concentrated group of Adawa around the bay, the Bear River congregation? Cross Village. Cross Village At that still. time. Well, I want to say between Middle Village, which is Goodhart, and Cross Village. That was the largest concentration. And for the listeners out there, you'll hear a term locally called Waganuxing. And that's land of the crooked tree. And that is between Cross Village and Harbor Springs, the whole, what we call the Tunnel of Trees. But the original name for that is Waganuxing. That's, that's the heartland. In 1859, Andrew Porter writes a letter stating he's very upset that Bishop Barriga, also known as the Snowshoe Priest, had almost completed his church here in Petoskey, St. Francis Salinas uh, Mission Church, likely the oldest building in northern lower Michigan. And then by the mid-1950s, we have Peter Greensky. Uh, he's, he's building over on uh, Lake Susan, a Greensky church, one of my favorite places to visit. Peter was baptized as a Methodist, but the church has double listing. Sometimes they claim it was Protestant and Methodist. Uh, do you know which is more accurate to that time of the 1860s? Uh, are they more Presbyterian or, or, or Methodist out there? I guess it's that flexibility. <laughs> it's the flexibility again, yeah. yeah. Whoever shows up, right? Well, there's a lot of different avenues that Native people are going in terms of denominations. You have Methodist, there's Catholic, Presbyterian, but the the context for this time period, I think, is worth noting and that this is the thick of those civilization policies. And we are just coming off the tail end of avoiding removal to Kansas. So the tribe here was slated for removal to Kansas in 1838. We were actually told we were pack your bags, leave. They sent scouts out to Kansas and they came back in the early 1830s and said, we can't go out there. The first thing they said, there's no water. No water, no trees. How are we going to live? How are we going to feed ourselves? How are we going to eat? How are we going to survive? And we went through some pretty remarkable times in the 1830s and 40s to stay home. Uh, but during this whole period, it's, again, you have to be civilized. And in, in order to be civilized, you got to you know go to church. So you see all these different churches establishing themselves with less resistance in the, in the mid-19th century. Early 20th century or 19th century, they're, they're here, but as it, that century progresses, it becomes apparent that you have to go to church. You know, this isn't going to be tolerated. And I mean, it was it 1978 that Native people could have their religion practiced freely with the Indian Religious Freedom Act. Hmm. We're the only race to have a law, a federal law that says you can practice a religion openly without persecution. So that tells you that there was persecution, <laughs> that people were being restricted in their beliefs. Uh, but that's a, that time period, the mid-1800s, I always, I always want to say people have a choice, but at that time, your choices were pretty limited. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, by the mid-1880s, that's the period when the Catholics, the Presbyterians, and the Methodists were, quote-unquote, fighting for the souls of, of the Indians, is what they kept saying. You know, again, uh, and not to use that term savage or mm -hmm. uncivilized, but yeah, it was like almost something that was just demanded. Yeah, I, I, I went 
disagree with that term of demanded, that you, you're being demanded to go to these churches. And it was just, it was part of society at the time. It was a norm, you know, that you went to church and that your kids went to church. And it just became really ingrained in the communities. And it's still in the communities. You know, there's a lot of people who are part of the tribe who go to church and partake and some who don't. And then there's people who, you know, believe both ways, you know, traditional and Christian, and they mix them. And it's, they're, again, flexible, completely at ease with picking what works for them in a system and applying it to their lives. And I grew up in a, you know, a non-Christian family and we're, you know, doing what we could. And one of our major ceremonies that we still do to this day, it's called the Ghost Supper. Yes. This is some of my earliest memories as a child in Cross Village of going to these Ghost Suppers. And these Ghost Suppers are held every fall to honor the ancestors, but not just to honor them, but also to feed them in the afterlife. It's a very powerful ceremony. been going on for thousands of years. And this is one of the things that the Odawa would, would not budge on, is the Ghost Supper. They would have it no matter what. And then they got crafty and they moved it to November 1st, All Souls Day. And so people would come by and say, oh, you're honoring All Souls Day. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Come and have a seat and have a bite. Um, now we can do this freely. And uh, every fall we still do this in the community. And I remember uh, growing up in Cross Village, you know, going to these suppers with my mom and my grandma and just strangers' homes. And they'd welcome you. And there was no invitation. If you heard about it, that was the invitation. You go. And I remember sitting there and long table full of food and, and my mom's like you got to take a little bit of everything you know one bite if, if at all out of respect for the out of respect but also that the family that's preparing that meal they're putting food on the table that their ancestors like so when you're eating you're feeding them and so the, the dishes are being passed i'm like i don't really like pickle bologna or fried cabbage so he's like just have a bite and you can have whatever you want so i would begrudgingly as a <laughs> seven-year-old and then we would have the supper at our home. So we would host. And so we're having all the foods of, you know, my mom's grandfather and so on and so forth. But also foods that we feel are more traditional, like wild rice or deer or fish and for the ones thousands of years ago. So all these people are coming in our home. And we're like, who is that person? And nobody's like, I don't know. Did you tell them? Like, I don't know. They just heard about it. And they, you know, of course, hospitality. They sit. You sign a little book when you come in and you wait. And then when your name's called, you come and sit, you eat, you get up and you leave and we reset the table and you, you just keep doing this until you're done. And sometimes we'd have people show up at midnight, one in the morning, and you don't refuse them. You say, you're a little bit later than everybody, but we got something left. And then uh, you're done for the night. So we still do that. And that is one of the oldest ceremonies that we have in the, in the community. It's a real, real special time in that like late October, early November time for us. I guess then that, that was my point, I guess, is uh, it seems like everything was fine before this forced uh, religious conversion. I mean, there was a strong, strong sense of spirituality. And like you mentioned, even based upon just the surroundings up here, the respect for nature. And, and that, that, that didn't change. You know, it, that sense of spirituality, connectedness, I don't think changed to a large degree, because in my mind, that's what kept us here. When we were being forced with removal, it could have been very easy for us to just pack up and leave. But they said, no, we have to stay home. And a large reason is the ancestors. We have letters, um, primary sources 
from Odawa leaders during the 1830s, 40s, and 50s who are writing Congress, they're writing the president, petitioning to stay home. And one of the main reasons is to be by the dead. We can't leave them. We, we have to be here. We have to take care of them. We have to feed them. So in a, in a way, they were anchors for us. They kept us here in some pretty turbulent seas. I can definitely identify with that again with the passing of my mother this year. I feel like I still need to stay around, you know, her home state of, of Michigan, uh, even though I know she's, she's in a different place, but I can, I can identify with that. Yeah, that connectedness doesn't go away. And we still have the supper, even through COVID, uh, we didn't have a public supper for obvious reasons, but it was just like immediate family. And as long as the ancestors are fed, then things will be all right. Uh, moving on just a little bit here. We did a, a podcast a, a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, about war and land acquisition. And, uh, and of course, this place has always been a very viable place and a desirable place. But surprising enough to me, as much of a financially viable and fought over region, tip of the mitt was there was not a lot of conflict here during the French Indian War or the American Revolutionary War right here in northern Michigan. Is there more history you can kind of provide for that? Because like the British were moving the fort during the original American Revolution. They're moving Fort Michel Mackinac from the mainland to, to Mackinac Island, pretty much leaving themselves fairly defenseless. Um, so uh, it just it, it wasn't. There's not a whole lot of history of conflict here during the the French Indian War or the American Revolutionary War. You know, more in 1812. But uh, during that period, what, what's going on with the Odawa and the Americans and the British and the French? Are they fighting elsewhere? Well, in the French and Indian War, they're certainly fighting elsewhere in you know Quebec and in New York and. There's also this other, I want to label it or, or call it this in, like internal conflict I think is going on quite a bit throughout these tribal communities that diseases are just rampaging and they're just decimating communities. You know, 80, 90% of communities are dying from smallpox and measles, influenza. So that, that's a conflict into itself of how do you avoid these epidemics that are just destroying tribes. And at the same token, you're losing this, your populations and you're still having to fight. So even though these diseases are coming through and killing large numbers of people, these men still go out and they fight. And they're not fighting here, but they go in large numbers in the French and Indian War. Hundreds of Odawas and Ojibwes are taken off from Mackinac under the leadership of Aki Ekwadizi, um, he who is fierce for the earth, Charles Langlade. And that's like, that's probably the coolest name I've ever heard in anywhere. It's like, but he earned it. I mean, he was the main war chief of all the native nations in the French and Indian war. And he was leading these large war parties and, um, going out East and fighting in Quebec and New York and being successful. And so they weren't fighting here, but they were sending their men to fight. And then this all leads into the revolutionary war. And so, again, Charles is part of that whole front. Odawa men from this area are going and fighting, again, out east. So the fighting isn't taking place in our backyard, per se, but, you know, the guys are going and fighting. They're still supportive of... of well, they're supportive of their cause. Their cause, yeah. Yeah, and I, would, I don't want to say that they're 100%, you know, British, because they were fighting against the British in, you know, the French and Indian War, but there's this greater threat to removal, and that's the Americans. True. They're coming in and they're, they're taking lands and taking resources, so you got to do something. And that kind of brings us next to uh, during Pontiac's Rebellion in 1763, there's an attack on Fort Michel Mackinac. Uh, Frank, uh, again, to reference Frank Edward uh, once told me that 
Actually, the Petoskey and Harbor Springs, Ottawa, were maybe even trying to help calm the tensions on that day. Is that is that accurate? That that's a comp. It's complicated. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> this all this history is complicated. It's, as I was delving into it, it's. Just, I mean, that's one of the narratives that the Odawa from here at Waganuxing were trying to soothe things or not have them escalate. And then there's another narrative that they were in on it all along, and that. Their role was to come in as mediators afterwards because after the battle took place, they got hostages and ransomed them back to the, you know, the British. And, but then there's also the narrative that they truly did not know what was happening. And they came to the party late. And that's when they said, what are you doing? And, you know, we're going to take these hostages as payment. I don't know. It's, it's one of the you know, fascinating pieces of history of this area is what happened on June 2nd, 1763 at Mackinac that hundreds of Ojibwe's and um, visiting Sox were having a game of lacrosse and yeah. it was a ruse, it was a trick yes. to get the fort and they took the fort. and Held it for almost a year. Held it for almost a year and again, this guy Charles Langlade's right in the mix. He He's a mediator at the time and gets these British officers uh, to safety back at Waganuxing here and then they get shipped out to Montreal so I don't know. You know, it's one of these open-ended questions I have with myself. Like, what really did happen? Because it was so well-coordinated. It was so well-executed. And it's right in the Odawa backyard. Like, how <laughs> did you not know that 500 guys are here? And lacrosse back then was, it was brutal. It's called the Little Brother of War. And people died in lacrosse. It was that vicious. It was that vicious. <laughs> and no helmets, no pads. You know, these guys are running around in loincloths. And they're getting hit with sticks or getting trampled. Some are getting killed. And so it was an event. You know, there's a lacrosse game going on. It's like, I don't think I'm going to play today, but I'll, I'll go and watch. But to have that many guys play, something was up. Something was up. Yeah. And Alexander Henry's account uh, of the taking of Fort Mitchell Mackinac, which he has a diary that's been published mm-hmm. and surrounding the area. One thing I find interesting in that is his perspective on, on the area during that, in that period. That's, that's the most interesting part of that whole, that whole book to me. Uh, but he mentions, again, what we just talked about a, min- a minute ago, there's very little sickness and disease among the indigenous people at that time. Uh, we know what happened when the Europeans came and, uh, and the American, uh, to, the, to the Americas with viruses and illnesses that the Native Americans had no resistance to. Uh, my spent, son spent the first three and a half years of his life in Belarus, and now he's in school here in public school. And it's like every week he's catching colds that no other children are catching. So, and this is a very benign form of what was being, you know, spread during that period. The Europeans couldn't control their own illness, let alone bring it to a, a you know, a group of people that are absolutely have no immunity to that whatsoever, no resistance. None. The War of 1812 was due in part to the fact that the Americans were coming west past the Appalachian Mountains and forming settlements on land that was supposed to have been set aside after the Revolutionary War as what I've seen on maps referenced as the Indian lands or the Indian reservations, which included the tip of the Mitt region. Fort Mackinac was the site of actually the first battle of 1812. It was actually a bit more of a, of a short, aggressive show of strategical dominance by the British. Were the Adawas supporting the British or the Americans at this time? Because, man, that now it starts to get really choosing the lesser of two evils probably at this point. This is a really, really, really complex time period where, in my mind, it's not this event in isolation. You know, this is an accumulation of conflict with Great Lakes tribes in the United States, beginning with the Revolutionary War. And then there's a a war that um, a lot of people don't know about, and that's Little Turtles War. And that's between 1790 and 94 down in Ohio and Indiana. 
And the United States just wasn't powerful enough at the time to go in and just evict the tribes. And the tribes were fighting back and they were winning. And they were scoring major victories down in, in Ohio, St. Clair's defeat, Harmer's defeat. And the United States just knew it, it just couldn't go in and push like it wanted to. And eventually a treaty was signed, the Treaty of Greenville, which ended this war. It's the first major treaty in the Great Lakes. And, but it's to end hostilities. The hostilities never end, though. There's this treaty, boundaries are established, and settlers keep pushing on to native lands. And when you're pushing on to native lands, you're pushing on to resources. People are, they can't feed their families. That's what it boils down to. And there's this huge amount of frontier violence that's going on in the late 1700s, early 1800s between settlers and tribes. And it's really, really hard to discern who's striking first. And a lot of these are revenge killings, retributions. The Kentucky militia is just notorious for being brutal at this time period. And they were taking no quarter, no mercy, no quarter. And they would go in and attack civilians, women and children. And survivors from that attack would go back and attack the, you know, the settlers. And it was just escalating until finally war was, broke out officially. But I want to say that the War of 1812 is a two-sided war where the tribes were already fighting the Americans in 1810 and 1811 on the frontier. And then the British and American conflict coincided with the tribes conflict. And it was just a natural fit to side with the British. But they were already fighting before 1812 broke out. And this is where you see Tecumseh come onto the scene and his brother, Tuscawanawa, mm -hmm. these real high profile leaders. And here in Northern Michigan, we had a huge delegation of warriors fight under a guy named Asiganak. He was from Middle Village, Cross Village area. He was our main war chief, Mookmanish, a little bad knife nobody cares about. Again, <laughs> really great name. That's <laughs> um, Muckaday Penase, Blackbird, um, Makuntz, he's another war chief, Clap of Thunder in the Night. Um, not one or two guys, there's hundreds, again, who are fighting in the War of 1812. And they're going to Niagara, they're going to Prairie du Chien, they're, they're going abroad, essentially, to fight. They're not fighting right in the backyard. I'm pretty sure they fought at Mackinac, the second Mackinac conflict. There was a lot of Ojibwe's under Jingwa Kuntz, uh, the little pine, he's the man from up in the Sioux. Uh, but it's interesting that they traveled to New York. That's a long paddle. To, you paddle for weeks, and then you fight. And then you paddle back. You know, it shows where their beliefs were, though, and where their, you know, what their what their thought process was at that time to be so. Uh, and then, you know, again, that's a that's quite a quite a journey just to fight. <laughs> to fight, and this is at the time musket. A lot of it's hand to hand. Oh, it's it's vicious. It's I mean, it's, vicious. it's 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 true true warfare. It's just I can't face imagine face to face face to face face to face. So a lot of our guys were heavily involved in 1812, and we have, you know, a good amount of documentation of, you know, who they are, where they're from. There's some portraits, actually, of a Siganak and Mukmanish who actually have visuals of what they look like. So it's one of our, you know, strongest pieces of that time period. And also, as a, an Odawa Native person, it's like a sense of pride. Like, they were fighting for our rights. I might not be here doing this podcast in northern Michigan if it wasn't for them. I might be in Kansas, you know, talking about how we got kicked out. Um, so I really, you know, I'm mindful of, of their efforts and what they were fighting for. And the ironic thing is that after the War of 1812, uh, Asiganak removes himself and his tribe to Manitoulin Island to establish a community 
and Mukmanish goes with him and Ching Maso, and they're so apprehensive of American removal. They they know it's going to happen. And it's like, we're, we're going to take our own chance and remove ourselves to a familiar area than be pushed out to Kansas. Who wants to go to Kansas? No offense. <laughs> no water. <laughs> no water. You mentioned something just a, a second ago, uh, resources. It's not always about, about land. It's, it's about resources, uh, ability to sustain yourself, uh, anybody's ability. Uh, in the, uh, the James Jesse Strang book, Fascination of a Michigan King, there's some really good references to the time period up here. And in the book, it claims that the, the Adawa had lost their ability to sustain themselves in the same way that they had known for thousands of years because of the depleted forest, you know, that were being depleted at that time um, and from the lumbering and the near depletion of small and large game due to the fur trade. Uh, was there actual widespread starvation among the Adawa as a result of the actions of the Europeans at this time? Uh, the book Hungry Hollow is, you know, is going to follow a little bit later. Are the Adawa having trouble, you know, sustaining themselves, obviously, the way that they, they add? Well, I think it's impossible to sustain yourself in a method that's been so radically changed, you know, with lumbering, farming. I mean, they're draining swamps. This concept of land ownership, you know, people are coming in and saying, you, you can't have your sugar bush here anymore. You can't farm here anymore. Um, you can't, you know, have access to the lakes to launch your boat here anymore. So, yeah, it's going to drastically change your your life, your sustainability. But if anything, you know, the Odawa were resilient and they adapted to meet these challenges of dwindling resources, uh, limited economic resources, you know, not having the large numbers. So I want to focus on the fact that they were adapting and surviving during these times. The Treaty of 1836 and the Treaty of 1855, along with all the other treaties, did, did either of these treaties specifically have any positive outcomes for the local tribes? Yeah, I, I want to say they did because we're still here. Yeah, These yeah. were negotiated out of removal era, especially 1836. That's right in the middle of the Indian removal era. Uh, Andrew Jackson passes the Indian Removal Act of 1830. In 1830, this becomes a law. It had been happening previously. And... All of the tribes in Ohio, Indiana, are being removed by 1850. So it's happening in the north. It's not just, you know, Alabama and Mississippi with the Choctaws and the Cherokees and the southeastern tribes. There is northern removal, and there's actually Indian removal in Michigan. There was Potawatomis who were being removed out of Kalamazoo, Battle Creek, literally being hunted down by the army and shipped out to Kansas. And some of them are still there to this day as a prairie band of Potawatomi. So this was coming north. We knew it wasn't this idle threat. It was real. And in order to combat this real eminent threat, we had to get into these treaty negotiations. And the tribe here literally left Little Traverse Bay in November of 1835 in Birch Park Canoes and paddled all the way to Washington, D.C., to begin those negotiations. So I encourage any of the listeners to go and stand at the beach at Little Travers in November and just get a feel that, okay, I'm going to embark on this six to eight week journey on the lakes wearing wool coats. No, it sounds a little, uh, a little uh, too, too adventurous for me. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty adventurous, but that's what they had to do in order for the tribe to remain. What is the hierarchy among the Adawas uh, over the years? Was, was, there, was the term chief that of the ultimate authority, or, or were there chiefs more like, like a group of elders? So from my understanding of how government essentially worked, 
is that there was multiple we call Ogima, and Ogima is a leader. And the chief is a very Western term. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was these Ogima, and there was different Ogima for different functions, whether it's war, for peace, for gathering, for speaking. And there was Ogima for all these different communities, whether it's Cross Village, Middle Village, Beaver Island, Harbor Springs. So there was all these Ogimas from all these different communities, and they pretty much operated within their own sphere because they had all the resources, they had everything that they needed. For major decisions, they would all come together historically. But as the resources dwindled, then you see the power, the decision-making become more consolidated. They didn't have the, the ability to, to go and you know, have access to millions of acres uh, throughout the entire Lower Peninsula like they once did. So as the land base becomes restricted, the leadership styles change or the structure changes. And up until like the late 1800s, though, we still had all these chiefs from these different communities. And they would meet and gather and discuss for things that would affect all of them, such as war or treaties and so on and so forth. And uh, there's a real great account from, from Barriga. He talks about this large council um, down in the Grand River in the 1830s, right before the 36th Treaty. And the Odawa from Waganuxin go down there to meet with the Odawa from Grand River. And they're a lot of kin, a lot of relation. And they all meet to talk about this new thing we have to do. And this is a treaty. Not new in a sense. They've had treaties before, but not something of this scale. And Berga's not allowed to partake in it because he's not one of the people. So he's like watching on a hill and he's taking notes. But he talks about the formality and, you know, the, the length of the talks and that everybody had a turn to talk. It wasn't just one or two people. Everybody got a chance. It could take days, mm -hmm. but everybody got a chance to speak. That was really important. And then they would all go back to their communities and report back. Something we don't do these days. I'll sit it's down a, and talk. And... It's, a, it's a different time, yeah. And um, to be face-to-face, -to -face too. Mm -hmm. That was really important, that you wanted to be in front of other leaders but then also the accountability. So they didn't have, historically, it, it wasn't like a, I mean, people were so free to go from one community to another. If they didn't like your leadership style, like, well, I'm just going to go to this other village or I'm going to go to this other community. But if a leader was really out of line, they would remove them and just say, you're, this isn't the will of the people. You're not representing us. And so they would remove them or ask them to leave or step down. And most of the time, leaders would reciprocate that that. But um, would that be nice if we could do that right now with the conflict that's going on in Eastern uh, Europe? Just step aside. You know, you're not doing what's right. History keeps repeating itself. It keeps you repeating know? yourself. So, the leadership styles definitely change. I, but in my mind, uh, as a historian, it's it's large, largely due to you know your resources. You know, if you have those resources to sustain your community, you don't have to to go somewhere else or change. You know, I can grow my food. I can fish my fish. I can hunt. I can trap. Everything's right here. You didn't have to leave. That's, that's, that's why we still love this area. You know, there's still a little bit of that left. There's still a little bit of that sense in northern Michigan. Yeah, it, it's really here. And, you know, I've had the good fortune in my life to travel other places. And nothing's quite like northern Michigan in terms of, like, I don't have to worry about a spider bite me and then I die. Or tsunami or tornadoes and, you know, there's still springs you can go to and get fresh water. Like what places have this where I can just go fill my water bottle with just pristine water? 
we were just in Key West, and it's like there's all this water around you, and, and you're, you're dying of thirst because your whole body's being dehydrated by yeah. the salt, you know? Yeah, it's just a real blessing here. Uh, last year, it was announced that after decades of most indigenous children in Canada being taken from their families to boarding schools, made to never return, mass graves were found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in Canada, with hundreds of children's skeletal remains found on premises. And then in a local statement, the Diocese of Gaylord is aware of painful past events at Holy Childhood of Jesus, including disturbance of unmarked graves in the 1890s. Matters related to the parish's graveyard and cemetery have since been handled in collaboration with the Little Travers bands of Adawa Indians, particularly during an extensive renovation to the church and grounds in the late 1990s and onward. The U.S. Department of Interior has recently announced the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative, which will review federal boarding school policies and detail available historical records with an emphasis on cemeteries or potential burial sites. The Diocese of Gaylord fully supports and will cooperate with this initiative. There have been broad accounts of misconduct involving Holy Childhood of Jesus School. The Diocese of Gaylord continues to urge that any allegations of abuse by a priest, bishop, or someone in the church should be reported regardless of when it occurred. Individuals are urged to file a report by contacting the law enforcement, the Michigan Department of Attorney General. There's a, a site on Harbor Springs website where they actually talk about graves and surrounding earth around the church being mixed with cement and used in the foundations of newer buildings uh, during the late 1890s. I know on Mackinac Island, for instance, uh, thank God there are finally restrictions and strict rules that regulate proper and respectful procedures that must be followed upon the discovery of burial sites or archaeological sites. You mentioned earlier that's kind of one of your, your things is you'll travel just to bring back you know, a small, small remnant to try to make sure, make sure it's, it's re-interned in a, in a respectful way. Um, it's just hard to imagine that these practices were going on here. And, of course, you, know, you hear all these abuses of the Catholic Church over the years, but how vulnerable uh, the Native American children were which uh, kind of brings me to the following uh, question is, is, can we address the unfortunate accepted practice here of relocating Northern Michigan's Native American children? And, and, and when was that the most prevalent? I think you touched on it just a little bit. Um, what, what, describe a little bit of that, that process, what was going on. We hear about the, you know, the children being terrified by the nuns coming up here and grabbing them and forcing them. Um, where were they taking them also? Of all my areas of, of work and, and research, the, the boarding school, the Indian boarding school is certainly the most sensitive. It's the one I, I treat differently than other areas just because of the nature of it. You know, we're talking about children, but also the fact that Holy Childhood was one of the last boarding schools to operate in the country. It closed in 1983. So therefore, we have individuals within the community who are still with us who went to that school. And so I want to be mindful and respectful of them. Uh, we call them survivors and I didn't go to the boarding school, so I, I can't speak to that. I always want to be respectful of their stories and their experiences. I see myself fitting into this research and story of, of Indian boarding schools as the background. And when I say background, I mean what created the system. You know, I don't want to talk about experiences of individuals. That's for them to tell. Mm -hmm. But what I want to talk about is what created this in the first place. These schools didn't pop up out of nowhere. They just didn't get built. Again, this is a system of civilizing, quote-unquote, savages. It started very early, and it just became more hardened and more precise and more funded throughout the 1800s until by the late 1880s, 
the system was ready to take off, the boarding school system. And there was over 360 of these schools in the United States that we know of so far. There could be more. And so when this news broke in Canada last year, it was just absolutely numbing yeah. to see one after the other school discovering mass burials, 180, 200, 750 kids at one school. That's an entire generation of a tribe. And you compound that with the fact that natives represent such a small percentage of the population in the first place. It's mind-blowing. It's, it's unfathomable. It's unfathomable. It really you know, when you're 1% of the population and then within one generation, 700 kids are gone. But we had 300, so we had 360 of these schools in the United States, four within Michigan that I know of so far, uh, one up at Barriga, Holy Childhood, Harbor Springs, Mount, Mount Pleasant, and then um, St. Joseph down by Kalamazoo. So we know of those four so far. There could, be, could have been more, but we'll flesh that out with the research. And the fact that we have a Native woman as the Secretary of Interior is, is, is this huge moment for, for Indian country. And she's made the statement, we're going to look in, within our own borders of the United States. We're not just looking at Canada. We're looking at what happened here. And so with this investigation of where are the schools, you know, who ran them, what kind of records are there, were there you know, burials or cemeteries adjacent to the schools, you know, these are the first steps to that investigation, which is absolutely necessary. In terms of Holy Childhood, I, I don't think I'm ready to answer that question right now. I mean, because we have so many people who are with us today who went to the school, all kinds of mixed experiences at the school. So I might have to come back and talk about that sure. for right now. And, you know, with the discoveries down there and this whole situation. So out of respect for the individuals who went out to put this one uh, aside for now. Thank you for uh, sharing what you have shared. But the term savage is, is the only thing I can think of when you think of the people that would be involved and perp perpetrate these type of, uh, of crimes against uh, you know, children. It's just, it's, just un it, it's just unfathomable, again, to use that word. And this system was in place for you know, close to 100 years. You know, the, the first school was Carlisle down in Pennsylvania, and there was Odawa kids who went to Carlisle. And there was Odawa kids who went to Genoa, Nebraska, and Haskell, Kansas, and out in Oklahoma. So it wasn't just Michigan they were going to. They were going all over the country. But the fact that we had this school right in our backyard of Harbor Springs, and it was in operation until the 1980s, and that people were going there in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. All these other schools were closing by the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. And the fact that whole childhood kept going on as this institution is... Uh, a story that needs to get told. And also the fact that we need to listen to the survivors. That's their story and that it's individual to individual. And I really stress that people look at um, not just listen to one or two people and then that's the whole story of Holy Child. It's not. You got to listen to all these different stories. But again, why was this place even created? Mm -hmm. That's what I want to have answered to. That this place didn't, like I said, spring up out of nowhere. It was funded, it was created, planned, and it was such a fixture of Harbor Springs. It was the largest building. I mean, you came downtown, you couldn't miss it. It was a huge red brick building. Everybody knew what it was. It was just part of the landscape, and now it's gone. And if you walk by there to this day, you would never know that that was an Indian boarding school. Yep. It stood there. No sign, no marker, nothing. But if you do know, then you know the impact, not just of the kids that went there, but also the ripple effects that a lot of language was lost in that institution. 
You know, people w- weren't coming out speaking their native language. They were speaking English or this idea of not being Indian. You know, your identity is being changed. But then again, I want to, you know, recenter on the resiliency of the tribe. Now we have a language program and, you know, people are naming their children in, in Odawa and that's on their birth certificate. You know, what a move past all of that history to say, I'm going to name my kid an Odawa name. That's what their friends call them at school. That's what it's on their birth certificate. A lot of my friends have named their kids Odawa names and you see them interact with their peers and they don't mispronounce the name. It's perfect because they grew up with that kid since kindergarten and that's just who that kid is. And there's no teasing really, you know, it's just, that's who it is. What a change from 50 years ago, 70 years ago, where you weren't going to have a native name. You're going to change your name in a lot of cases to this angular name. So moving forward, despite. For the first time in hundreds of years. Yeah, it's just this really, really tough piece of history. And it's not unique to Michigan, though. No, not at all. It's all over this country. In Alaska, um, there's these schools operating late. And they didn't have these schools for any other race, just natives. It was just specific towards native people to make them non-native. How many residents currently uh, identify as a Dawa within our region here, within within the tip of the mitt? Uh, I don't know how many I like self-identify, but I'm trying to think how many are enrolled with Little Travers Bay Bands. I want to say approximately 4,600. And I don't know how many of those live in the tip. I'm going to really ballpark it, say 1,500. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's real, real loose ballpark. But there's roughly 4,600 enrolled. And I want to say how many, how many natives nationally? Like three and a half million? Still 1%. <laughs> Still 1%. Still 1%. What's the next chapter for the Adawa tribe here in northern Michigan? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, there's so much going on. And I've had the real, like I said, blessing of living my life when I lived it. So I'm 45 now. And the first, I say, 17, 18 years of my life was before the tribe got federal reaffirmation in 1994. Then post-1994, things changed, I mean, immensely for the tribe. With federal reaffirmation, you have access to just more opportunities and resources and so the tribe has just grown in the last 25 years at this huge rate where we have our own natural resource department, our own court, our own police, our own housing, our own accounting, language, education, archives. So we're a government, we've, but we've always been a government. But now we have more resources to enact our government. So who knows in the next 20 years where, where the tribe will be. But pretty- Sounds like we're already, you're, you're already in a better place, though. The tribe's already in a better place than even, like you said, 50 years ago? I, it's hard to say. Uh, I would say in a lot of regards, yes. I mean, I just remember listening you know, t- to my mom um, growing up in Cross Village, and we were dirt poor. I mean, that's it what it was, you know, and 10 people living in our house and some coming and going, and me, my grandma, my mom, my sister, aunts, uncles, cousins. It was just what it was. And... I just remember, you know, hearing these conversations with these people coming and visiting, we need to get our own housing, have more economic development, you know, jobs, mm-hmm. it's just working, steady jobs. Health, uh, health insurance was like this fairy tale. Yeah, you know, it's like, don't get sick was health insurance. <laughs> or, you know, you go see auntie and she's going to fix you up. And um, so 
in that regard, yeah, I mean, things are better. You know, I was just talking to my mom the other day about this stuff and, you know, the, the fact that, you know, we have health insurance and, you know, dental and, you know, we're having, re, you know, resources available for elders, like we have elders luncheons and, you know, things that just weren't there, but, but we always had that community there. That, that didn't just spring up in 1994. That community was always there, that sense of identity. We just have a larger way to take care of our populations now. Well, Eric, I mean, really, this has been like, like, like the best way possible I could think to start season two of our, of our podcast. Last year was sort of a trial. This is kind of like the first official season, and here we are actually starting from the beginnings, if you will. And uh, again, thank you for joining us and sharing all of the uh, fantastic history about Michigan's true first settlers. It's been well, a pleasure to have you. you no, know, I'm always appreciative of having the opportunity to tell this a different story. There's a lot of stories out there, so keep listening and keep watching. Well, thank you again. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and be sure to join us next time on Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. If there's a topic of interest you would like us to feature on future episodes, or if you're well-versed in a particular aspect of Michigan's history and would like to be a guest, please reach out to us on our Facebook page, Tales of Northern Michigan's Past.